This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Story. And, well, we're going to spend some time on Vince Lombardi on this day in history. He retired, and Hengler has come up with his usual excellent produced piece on Coach. Here it is. I'll tell you something, Leroy. You're not going to get your job back unless we get a better performance. Come on, let's beat him up there. Get him out of there. Vince Lombardi was born in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, and went on to be the icon of winning and success in America and throughout the world. This is his story, as told by his players, his family, and himself. Our narrator is the unmistakable voice of John Facenda. And why not? The man nicknamed the Voice of God could take classic sports footage and make it even more unforgettable. So let's begin. Here's John Facenda. Vincent Thomas Lombardi, 1913. He was born on June 11th in Brooklyn, New York. His godfather was Sonny Jim Fitzsimmons, a legendary racetrack figure who trained three derby winners. When he was eight, he was an altar boy at St. Mark's Church. He wanted to be a priest. Here's Vince's mother, Mrs. Matilda Lombardi. He wanted to be a priest, and all of a sudden, that was off. Lombardi was an all-city fullback at St. Francis Preparatory High School and then accepted a scholarship to Fordham University in the Bronx to play for the Fordham Rams and their coach, Jim Crowley, one of the four horsemen of Notre Dame in the 1920s. Here's Tim Cohane, the former publicity director at Fordham University. Those days, Fordham had a play in which Lombardi is the right guard had to block the Pittsburgh left tackle Tony Matizzi, who was 215, 220, an All-American player. Lombardi weighed about 172. And uh, in trying to block Matizzi, or in blocking him, Vince received severe uh, cuts inside his mouth to the extent that he played almost 60 minutes with a mouth full of blood. I think the point in that is that there's nothing that Lombardi has demanded of the Packers that he didn't demand of himself full measure in his own playing days. In 1937, he graduates cum laude from Fordham. He goes to law school, marries, and is forced to find work. He coaches at St. Cecilia's High School in New Jersey and teaches Latin, physics, and chemistry. In 1947, he returns to Fordham as an assistant coach. In 1949, he goes to West Point as an assistant to Red Blake. Lombardi gave all the credit for his football success to Army's Red Blake and his time at West Point Academy. In 1954, Lombardi became an assistant for the New York Giants, but saw himself as a head coach. For five years, Lombardi searches impatiently for a head coaching position. He's rejected for one reason or another. In February of 1959, he arrives in Green Bay head coach and general manager of a team that hasn't seen a winning season for 11 disastrous years. A team with no direction, no future, and no morale. Here's Paul Horning. We knew from the outset that he was in command, a take-charge guy, and a guy that you couldn't fool around with. Here's Vince. I didn't come in and have a meeting with the players and say, myself, I wonder what their morale is going to be. I wonder how they're going to accept me. That wasn't what I said to myself. They're going to have to accept me. I'm not worried about their morale. I'm worried about Vince Lombardi's morale here. Alone, Lombardi resuscitates a disorganized, depressed, dying team. He force-feeds the Packers with his will to work, his demand for discipline, his relentless drive to win. By summer's end, the Packers are Lombardi. 
Here is Jerry Kramer. We were graded, of course, every play of every game throughout the year. And uh, on Thursdays, the grades would be posted on the blackboard for every eye to see. And, uh, Get him out of there, will you? Perhaps this was the start of something, instilling some pride in the individuals. Here again is Paul Horning. He's always said that you can't play a football game on Sunday. You have to start playing that football game on Tuesday, the first day of practice. Come on, look at me, 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 look at me. All right. And he's always believed that there's only two things that come before football. That's your religion and your family. There's only one job, and that's football. Here again is Matilda Lombardi. Somebody said he made football players out of some men, and he made men out of some football players. I think he's much more proud of the fact that he made some men out of football players. Here's the great Bart Starr. He tells you that if you give anything less than the best that you have within you at any time, regardless of the, the situation, regardless of the consequences, that uh, you're cheating yourself, you're cheating your teammates, you're cheating professional football, and you're cheating the fans who, uh, uh, who have made the game what it is today for you. But most of all, you're cheating your maker who gave you that God-given talent with which to succeed. Here's Vince. Anybody who has the idea that just to play or just to take part, and that's all that's necessary, I think, I think he's in the wrong business. I think he's in the wrong country. One of the things that made America great is to try to be the best in everything that they do. And the best, again, is signified by winning. Here again is Jerry Kramer. I've made the statement at times, his gifted children, and I think he thinks of everyone on the club as a child, or his child particularly. And he drives his gifted people so much harder than he does anyone else. He demands that you use your God-given ability the best you can. Here's Willie Davis. He's a coach that I'm sure that have prepared a lot of us to go out and live in a competitive society. Uh, he taught us a lot of values about life. As head coach and general manager of the Green Bay Packers, Lombardi led the team to five NFL championships. And like all good things, even the best things, well, this happens. Green Bay Packer football, as all of football, has grown in leaps and in bounds since 1958. The season begins... Take a good, hard look. Vincent Thomas Lombardi head coach and general manager of the Green Bay Packers. A winner. To every task he brought the desire, the dedication, the discipline to succeed. He never coached a losing team. Because of the nature of the business and because of the growth of the business and the corporate structure of the Packers, I believe it is impractical for me to try to do both jobs and I feel I must relinquish one of them. How about regrets? If I had to do things all over again, I, I think I would be very, very... I think I would pray for more patience, maybe, and more understanding. I, I think these are the two areas where I could, uh, I could improve a great deal, and I've been trying to, believe me. Vincent Thomas Lombardi, February 1st, 1968. On this day in history, Vince Lombardi retired. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Great job on this one, Greg.
is Our American Stories. And this next story comes from, well, Jesse's mind. He pulled this out. And it's an American dreamer's story, folks. We love telling the stories of folks who start businesses. Hey, musicians are an American dream story. We've done Mario Andretti's, a race car driver, and his dream and how he made it happen. His family displaced in Italy after World War II, comes here with nothing, and creates Andretti Racing. And you can hear all of our material on ouramericannetwork.org. Go there, sign up for our newsletter. You'll get the five best stories of ours each week. We'll send them right into your box. You can read them or you can listen to them. We transcribe all of these stories for your pleasure as well. Some people just like to read it. Others like to listen. And this story again is Jesse's, and it's about Brian Scudamore, an American-born entrepreneur and the CEO of Got Junk, a company with $200 million in yearly revenue that repurposes and recycles what many of us throw away in the trash. He gave a speech recently where he talked about the things he learned while building what has become the world's largest junk removal service. Brian's story starts off like a lot of entrepreneurial stories in that he was more interested in starting a business than going to school. 1989, right out of high school, one course short of graduation, I went and started the Rubbish Boys, saw a beat-up old pickup truck and a McDonald's drive through and I went, hey, there's a great idea. My inspiration for starting that business was it was simple. I didn't finish high school. I wasn't that smart. I could load junk into a truck. I had $1,000 in the bank. I could go buy a truck. I spray painted the phone number 738 junk on the side, knocked on doors, alleys, laneways. Someone had a pile of junk. I'd introduce myself and offer to cart it away for a fee. That basic business model was to help pay my way through college. Because I didn't finish high school, I remember my father said, I'm not going to help you with your college education. I don't think it would be a good return on investment. You know, you can't finish grade 12. Why should we give you some money? And I thought, you know, that's fair. And that taught me something. I had to do it on my own. So by starting the Rubbish Boys, started making money, started to fund my way through college, felt I was learning an awful lot about business, running a business. And it was just that on the streets learning. And I made the bold decision to drop out. We learned that Brian's business began to grow, but it wasn't enough to keep Brian interested in what he was doing. So 1991, I had a couple of years under my belt. The business was working. I was making money. um, And I decided that I felt bored. I felt like, you know, this is a junk business, nothing glamorous about it. And I tried to sell my business. Had a deal in writing with someone for five grand. Um, Not a lot of money, but it felt like enough at the time and the deal fell through at the 11th hour, and I just felt crushed. But the lesson I learned slightly after that was that the lows precede the highs. The tide goes in, the tide comes out, the sun rises, the sun sets. There's gonna be bad times, there's gonna be tough times, but it's what you learn from those to help turn them into the good times. The following year, when I stuck with my business because I couldn't sell it, felt like I was sort of forced to stick with it, there was still good money, uh, my girlfriend at the time said, why don't you go to the press and tell them your story? And they said, what story? And she said, well, you created your own job. It's kind of cool. People like entrepreneurs. So I went out and told my story to the press, and we got on the front page of the province newspaper, our, our head newspaper in the city, on the next day with our big truck, our phone number, 100 calls within, a, within 24 hours, and that was a bit of a high. I was like, okay, free press. Didn't cost a thing. Uh, let's do more of this. But with the highs came the lows, and Brian's next difficult step, he'd have to fire everyone at the company. 
1994, I think that was the first real lesson that I experienced as a manager or as a leader. And I think leadership is a, a real important word. It's everything in a business. I had the wrong people. I was leading the wrong people in my business. I had a half a million dollars in revenue, which was exciting and I felt good about it, but I stopped having fun. I wasn't working with people that I enjoyed working with any longer. I don't think they respected me. I didn't really respect them. Brought them all in, a, in an office one day and sat all 11 down because I wanted just to get it over with and rip off the Band-Aid and I fired everybody at once. But I took full, <laughs> it wasn't funny, you laugh, it, it was awful. Most of them were bigger than me. And I said, listen, you know, you're a linebacker, you're big, but I'm still firing you. And you know what the deal is here is I, as your leader, have let you down. I either didn't hire the right people or I didn't train you, didn't spend enough time with you. I didn't give you the support and direction you need to be successful. So let me be clear, this is my fault. And I believed it. And that day I came up with a mantra that it's all about people, finding the right people and treating them right. In fact, at our head office, the junction in Vancouver, it says it's all about people with my name below it as our commitment to always find the right people and always treat them right. So one piece of uh, wisdom, I guess, from my own learnings was never, ever, ever compromise on the people you bring into your organization. I've made mistakes. I said it was okay, and I said don't repeat them. I've certainly repeated them, and every time I do, it's the worst mistake to make because it ends up costing you time and money. And by the way, we hear this mantra over and over again from Bernie Marcus, who is the co-founder of Home Depot, straight to Mario Andretti and his racing crew, and he had the best. Because my goodness, a racer without a great car and without a great pit crew is nothing. While his company was experiencing initial success, and after realizing that he'd hired the wrong people, Brian created a vision for his company that would have more impact than he could have ever imagined. Now, 1998, I came up with a concept that I didn't realize at the time. I was on, on another low. I went to my parents' uh, summer cottage, sat out on the dock, September 17, 1998. Sunny day, but it wasn't sunny in my brain. I felt depressed, I felt down, all my other entrepreneur buddies were building bigger businesses. And I just said, you know, junk removal again, I don't have the brains, I don't have the money, I don't know if this is what I want to build. And then I said, hold on here a second. I pulled out a piece of paper and I sat out on that dock and I wrote on both sides, what could the future of 1-800-GOT-JUNK look like if only I believed in possibility? Not all the things that were in the way, mostly me, but what was the possibility? And I wrote, we will be in the top 30 metros in North America by the end of 2003. We'll be on the Oprah Winfrey show. This is what our people will look like, feel like, and act like. This is the culture. And I listed it all out. And it really was sort of a Jerry Maguire moment. And I wrote almost my manifesto. And I started sharing it with people. And I started buying into my own uh, vision or painted picture. And I went, wow. I was ready to give up on my business, maybe sell again or quit but I chose to believe in my vision and rally others around me. People that believed stayed on board and became a part of it. People that didn't believe left and said, this isn't for me. It was the ultimate leadership tool. I had a clear vision, a clear painted picture, knew where I was going. I guess my lessons learned, my own experience, if you have a clear vision and know where you're going, if you believe in it and never question that vision so that others that come into your business it uh, doesn't matter how small or large your business is. If you don't have a clear vision, I don't think you'll get to where you want to go. You don't have a clear picture. So you need people to follow. And then finding the right people. People have often said to me, well, how do you find the right people? And there's 
books on it and you can get checklists and all this sort of stuff. I keep it relatively simple. And I sit there and I go, okay, first and foremost, I'm hiring for culture. Is this someone I'd want to have over to my house for a barbecue? Is this someone that I'd want to go have a pint with after a, a busy, crazy day or some cool celebration? Let's start there, because you spend an awful lot of time at work. I want to enjoy my time with that person and know that they're a cultural fit. If they're a cultural fit, then you dive into the next level and look at their skills. But I think if someone believes in your vision and they've got cultural alignment, they'll figure everything else out. It's not that hard. In closing, Brian shares a quote that was used in an advertising campaign by Apple. So the quote goes something like this. Here's to the crazy ones. The misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They move, they push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see them as genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can actually change the world are the ones who do. And that was a great find, Jesse. Brian Scudamore's story got junk. We've done so many of these American Dreamer stories, some of our recent favorites. Jake Burton and what he did to revolutionize a sport called snowboarding. And the Cedars brothers, Brian and Roy, and they gave us Yeti, the Yeti Coolers. Our American Dreamers series here on Our American Stories. our American stories and on our show we like to share the experiences of our soldiers in order to help heal the citizen-soldier divide and there's a big one in this country. One of our regular contributors is Ben Sledge. Ben's a wounded combat veteran with tours in Iraq and Afghanistan where he spent time in the United States Army serving a portion of it under the Special Ops Command before leaving the military after 11 years of service. He's the recipient of the Bronze Star, the Purple Heart, and two Army Commendation Medals. Ben now works within the music industry for Heart Support, a nonprofit that helps millennials battling addiction, suicide ideation, depression, sexual abuse, loneliness, broken relationships, and a host of other issues. Here, he tells the story of his friend Casey, someone who helped him transition back to normal everyday life after his deployment. 
It was raining the day Casey died. Fourteen years earlier, you hunched, covering your face as sun-bleached gravel whipped through your hair and pelted your cheek. The incoming helicopters kicked gravel and sand into those stupid of us enough to wait, or curious enough to discover more. Men ran frantically while pointing and yelling. Some had black smudges across their face. You could only assume was tar or gunpowder. Then they hauled him off the helicopter while yelling to clear a path. Most people remember the first time they've watched someone die. Grandma in the hospital bed whose hand goes slack. The friend in the accident who exhales one last time while his eyes go wide. Yours involve blood and gurgling noises. The bleached earth turning a dark crimson while the stretcher drizzled the nearby ground like light rain. You always remember the gasping noises. It's that noise that sticks out the most. Everything else after that moment is blocked out. It's like trying to open a portion of your mind where you buried a key. But the key is in a safe whose combination you don't know. And you toss that safe to the bottom of the ocean. Never mind the fact you can't remember where you toss the safe or what ocean it's in. Years later, it's the gurgling, gasping noise you remember. And then a rifle, two boots, a helmet, and dog tags. That's what you remember. Casey was there when he had those dreams. The ones about men dying. The ones where you remembered you were all alone in this big green earth. The ones where you felt abandoned and misunderstood. She would cradle your face and whisper, They're there. Our soul often remembers the darkest days of the moments that permanently changed us. As Casey was dying, these were the memories that flooded my stream of consciousness. Coming home from war, facing divorce, feelings of abandonment and loneliness, and the morbid death dreams. Why are you dwelling on some of the most horrific life moments now? I pondered. It wasn't until after her passing that I realized the same lessons she always taught me. She was now teaching me in death. For much of my life, I believed the trauma I endured would affect everything I touched, would last forever, and that some of it was my fault. I helped blow up my marriage being gone all the time. Couldn't stop thinking about how alone I feel. I had no one, and I deserve that. You wonder how to go on with life and whether you'll ever be okay. It'll get better, is the platitude you hear offered by others but they don't know what to say either. Casey was different. The word she spoke over and over again was a simple one. Endure. It was as if Casey was my personal butler, Alfred, and I was Batman. In the movie The Dark Knight, Bruce Wayne seems stuck in an impossible dilemma and asks his butler for personal advice. Whereas others might have given him a pat on the back and said, buck up kiddo, you're the Batman and you're rich. Alfred instead delivers one of the most powerful lines in the movie. He tells him, Endure, Master Wayne. Take it. You can make the choice that no one else can make. The right choice. People these days fall apart over seemingly nothing. They didn't get the job they wanted. Life isn't going according to their five-year plan. They're not married or in a relationship. They feel they lack purpose or direction. Their waiter got their order wrong. Much of the Western world seems to lack resiliency and the ability to endure hardship, it would seem. We don't know how to process grief, let alone the crises life throws at us. But sorting through our disappointment, grief, and trauma is paramount to becoming a whole and resilient person. 
In their book, Option B, Facing Adversity, Building Resilience, and Finding Joy, Adam Grant and Cheryl Sandberg explain, we plant the seeds of resilience in ways we process negative events. After spending decades studying how people deal with setbacks, psychologist Martin Siegelman found that three P's can stunt recovery. One, personalization, the belief that we are at fault. Two, pervasiveness, the belief that an event will affect all areas of our life. And three, permanence, the belief that the aftershocks of the event will last forever. The three P's play like the flip side of the pop song, everything is awesome, everything is awful. The loop in your head repeats, it's my fault this is awful, my whole life is awful, and it's always going to be awful. As Casey went blind and could no longer walk up the stairs at my house, I knew it was time to endure grief and pain once more. So I gently laid her in the back of my car and drove to the veterinarian. I guess I forgot to mention, Casey was my 16-year-old cat. I never wanted to be the guy who gets overly attached to an animal, let alone falls to pieces when they die. To some degree, it's unhealthy. There are children dying in Syria we need to be more concerned with than Fluffy or Fido. However, when I shared this sentiment in the midst of my grief with my best friend, he reminded me of something. It scares me how attached I am to my dog sometimes. I think the reason why is that with him, it's a different relationship. With my dog, I never have to wonder where I stand with him or if I've let him down. That's a lesson I'm taking to heart to love my wife and friends better. What lesson did Casey teach you? Before I got remarried, I lived with a close friend who played football for Dartmouth. He too had a cat he was obsessed with. We always laugh about an evening we invited two girls over who made fun of us for looking like professional athletes that had an uncanny affection for cats. My old roommate's cat, named Gus, died tragically about a year ago. When he shared what he learned, I realized his lesson was the same as mine. Resilience. His cat was an anchor when he moved to another state, found himself in a job he hated, lived alone, and wanted to kill himself. That cat kept me from killing myself. Who the hell was going to feed him if I was gone? Then over time, I realized he was weathering the changes better than I was. If my cat could make it, so could I. When Gus passed away, despite his grief, he took that lesson to heart and endured. He continues to do so in the midst of some of the hardest situations and decisions he's faced. Perhaps that's the great joy we often miss in the animals we love, the lessons they teach us that help us grow stronger. Whether that's loving someone when they don't deserve it, resilience, patience, or even suffering well, animals seem to endure suffering better than humans, whereas we ask why, they crawl off to be alone. When I arrived at the vet to put Casey down, I tried not to cry in front of the tech. When it came time to put her down, the vet asked me, are you ready for this? That's when the memories I described in the beginning flooded back. There was Casey, cuddling my face when I felt sad, and teaching me to endure. I was in Afghanistan and Iraq, I say through a knowing smile. I've seen worse. An hour later, I buried Casey in my backyard while it rained. I buried her in the spot where there was no grass growing, and most of the vegetation was dead. 
I figured it was appropriate. Because even in her death, where she's buried, reminds me that where there's no grass, there's always an opportunity for some to grow. And great job on that, Faith. And thank you, Ben. Ben Sledge's story, his cat's story, Casey, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Ralph Waldo Emerson is a name you probably heard way back in high school, possibly elementary school. He was born in 1803, an American poet and philosopher. He began his career as a Unitarian minister in Boston, becoming famous around the world for his essays like Self-Reliance, History, The Oversoul, and Fate. He became a major name in the Transcendentalist movement where he earned the nickname The Sage of Concord. Self-Reliance is an essay written by Emerson in 1841 and it contains one of the most recurrent themes, the need for individuals to avoid conformity and false consistency and to follow their own instincts. It's the source of one of Emerson's most famous quotations, quote, A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines. So stop what you're doing for just a minute, sit down and listen to the rare eloquence of an American master poet and philosopher, and now, Ralph Waldo Emerson's Self-Reliance. Familiar as the voice of the mind is to each, the highest merit we ascribe to Moses, Plato, and Milton is that they set at naught books and traditions and spoke not what men, but what they thought. A man should learn to detect and watch that gleam of light which flashes across his mind from within more than the luster of the firmament of bards and sages. Yet he dismisses without notice his thought because it is his. In every work of genius we recognize our own rejected thoughts. They come back to us with a certain alienated majesty. Great works of art have no more affecting lesson for us than this. They teach us to abide by our spontaneous impression with good-humored inflexibility the most when the whole cry of voices is on the other side. Else tomorrow a stranger will say with masterly good sense precisely what we have thought and felt all the time, and we shall be forced to take with shame our own opinion from another. There is a time in every man's education when he arrives at the conviction that envy is ignorance, that imitation is suicide, that he must take himself for better or worse as his portion, that though the wide universe is full of good, no kernel of nourishing corn can come to him but through his toil, bestowed on that plot of ground which is given to him to till. The power which resides in him is new in nature and none but he knows what that is which he can do, nor does he know until he has tried. Not for nothing one face, one character, one fact makes much impression on him, and another none. This sculpture in the memory is not without pre-established harmony. 
the eye was placed where one ray should fall that it might testify of that particular ray. We but half express ourselves, and are ashamed of that divine idea which each of us represents. It may be safely trusted as proportionate and of good issues, so it be faithfully imparted, but God will not have his work made manifest by cowards. A man is relieved and gay when he has put his heart into his work and done his best, but what he has said or done otherwise shall give him no peace. It is a deliverance which does not deliver. In the attempt his genius deserts him. No muse befriends, no invention, no hope. Trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. Accept the place the divine providence has found for you, the society of your contemporaries, the connection of events. Great men have always done so, and confided themselves childlike to the genius of their age, betraying their perception that the absolutely trustworthy was seated at their heart, working through their hands, predominating in all their being. And we are now men, and must accept in the highest mind the same transcendent destiny, and not minors and invalids in a protracted corner, nor cowards fleeing before a revolution, but guides, redeemers, and benefactors, obeying the almighty effort, and advancing on chaos and the dark. Next, Emerson speaks about the attitude of human nature by observing the world through the eyes of a child. What pretty oracles nature yields us on this text in the face and behavior of children, babes, and even brutes! That divided and rebel mind, that distrust of a sentiment because our arithmetic has computed the strength and means opposed to our purpose, these have not. Their mind being whole, their eye is as yet unconquered, when when we look in their faces we are disconcerted. Infancy conforms to nobody, all conform to it, so that one babe commonly makes four or five out of the adults who prattle and play to it. So God has armed youth and puberty and manhood no less with its own piquancy and charm, and made it enviable and gracious and its claims not to be put by, if it will stand by itself. Do not think the youth has no force because he cannot speak to you and me. Hark! In the next room his voice is sufficiently clear and emphatic. It seems he knows how to speak to his contemporaries, bashful or bold, then, he will know how to make us seniors very unnecessary. The nonchalance of boys who are sure of a dinner, and would disdain as much as a lord to do or say ought to conciliate one, is the healthy attitude of human nature. A boy is in the parlor what the pit is in the playhouse, independent, irresponsible. Looking out from his corner on such people and facts as pass by, he tries and sentences them on their merits, in the swift summary way of boys, as good, bad, interesting, silly, eloquent, troublesome. He cumbers himself never about consequences, about interests. He gives an independent, genuine verdict. You must court him. He does not court you. But the man is, as it were, clapped into jail by his consciousness. As soon as he has once acted or spoken with éclat, he is a committed person, watched by the sympathy or the hatred of hundreds, whose affections must now enter into his account. 
there is no Lethe for this. Ah, that he could pass again into his neutrality. Who can thus avoid all pledges, and, having observed, observe again from the same unaffected, unbiased, unbribable, unaffrighted innocence, must always be formidable. He would utter opinions on all passing affairs, which, being seen to be not private but necessary, would sink like darts into the ear of men, and put them in fear. These are the voices which we hear in solitude, but they grow faint and inaudible as we enter into the world. We're listening to the introduction of Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay, Self-Reliance, and we now continue with part one of our series on this essay, where Emerson so bluntly shares his views on the struggle between society and the individual. Society everywhere is in conspiracy against the manhood of every one of its members. Society is a joint-stock company in which the members agree, for the better securing of his bread to each shareholder, to surrender the liberty and culture of the eater. The virtue in most requests is conformity. Self-reliance is its aversion. It loves not realities and creators, but names and customs. Whoso would be a man must be a nonconformist. He who would gather immortal points must not be hindered by the name of goodness, but must explore if it be goodness. Nothing is at last sacred but the integrity of your own mind. Absolve you to yourself, and you shall have the suffrage of the world. I remember an answer which, when quite young, I was prompted to make to a valued adviser who was wont to importune me with the dear old doctrines of the Church. On my saying, What have I to do with the sacredness of traditions if I live wholly from within? My friend suggested, But these impulses may be from below, not from above. I replied, they do not seem to me to be such, but if I am the devil's child, I will live then from the devil. No law can be sacred to me but that of my nature. Good and bad are but names, very readily transferable to that or this. The only right is what is after my constitution, the only wrong what is against it. A man is to carry himself in the presence of all opposition as if everything were titular and ephemeral but he. I am ashamed to think how easily we capitulate to badges and names, to large societies and dead institutions. Every decent and well-spoken individual affects and sways me more than is right. I ought to go upright and vital and speak the rude truth in all ways. And you were listening, by the way, to Bob Newfeld. And you can go on YouTube and hear him record so many of the great American works of art, all in the public domain. And you've been listening to his reading of Self-Reliance by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And we dig into some of the American classics sometimes, folks. You've also heard Bob read Common Sense by Thomas Paine. And a lot of this writing is as relevant today as it was when it was written back then, and that's why we bring you these things, because what's old is new and what's new is old. This is Our American Stories, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Self-Reliance. More. <clears throat> this is this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Ralph Waldo Emerson's story, in a way, all through his epic essay, Self-Reliance. Self-Reliance. <laughs>
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from sports to the arts, from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll put them up on the air. This next one comes from a guy named Kevin Cox, who likes to call himself the Brooklyn Cowboy. And Kevin's story centers around horse racing and his dad's annual tradition of taking the family to the oldest major sporting venue of any kind in America, Saratoga Racetrack. It would all start with a list. A few days before we'd leave, it would be on my father's dresser. Q-tips, Listerine, pens, socks, underwear, and on and on it went. One would think he was Jimmy Hoffa going away for a stretch, but in reality, it was how he would prepare for our two-night excursion to Saratoga year after year. Obviously, normative society doesn't feel compelled to itemize the most trivial minutia for a 48-hour pass to Nirvana, but this wasn't just any Saratoga fan. This was the Uber fan, the greatest Saratoga fan outside of that one in your family, or your co-worker's family, or maybe your neighbor. You get the idea. We'd shove off at 5.15 in the morning, a time that didn't work for me then and works even less for me now. He, on the other hand, was as bright-eyed and bushy-tailed as whatever bushy-tailed is supposed to mean. We'd roll into town too early to check in, but that was okay because we'd go right to the Spa City Diner for breakfast. Traditions, you know. After breakfast, he'd be at the table performing origami with his brand new racing form, ripping out the tracks not needed, and then refolding it so it fit perfectly into the back pants of his shorts pocket. Which, of course, were accessorized with matching loafers because isn't that what fathers do? We'd then check into the best-kept secret in town, the Brentwood Motel, located a horseshoe's throw from the seven-furlong shoot of the racetrack, and across the street from some breakfast joint, which is now the hot spot to go to after the races. Assuming, of course, that you don't want to hear what someone six inches away from you was saying. He would take me to watch the horses enter the starting gate in the morning. It wasn't our place to venture farther than that, you know, but that was okay, because that was a world to an eight-year-old. We'd head over to the races and go right upstairs to make sure the plastic owls hanging from the rafters hadn't flown off during the winter. Of course they hadn't, but tradition, you know. We'd meander over to the Big Red Spring for a funny-tasting water, but you didn't mind it because they'd give you these nifty red-and-white souvenir cups, a tradition that has since gone the way of periodontist mouth-rinsing Dixie cups, but what are you going to do? We'd watch him get saddled before the race, then he'd watch me try to get an autograph from a jockey who was just beaten by 30. We'd go and sit by the same area in the paddock under the tree, which was a nice little tradition, until somebody needed a condominium built there. On rainy days, we'd scoot to a bench under the old scratch board inside from where the band shell is. Yes, men would walk out on a catwalk and write all the changes and results on a giant board then go back through a door that was as mysterious to me as to how that quarter kept ending under my pillow through the years. Can you taste the twin lobsters, Pat? He would gleefully say throughout the day to my mother. 
and the months leading up to that day, as tradition dictated that we dine at the long-gone Weathervane restaurant. $9.95 they were, with a coupon from the pink sheet. He never bought a pink sheet, but we always ended up with the coupon somehow. He made sure that he had the last bite of the last lobster on the table. Not because he was pacing himself, mind you, but because tradition said that he had to torture my mother over it. We'd play a round of mini-golf afterwards at Murphy's right next door. It's still there these days. Think hard enough and you can remember the sounds of your old man holding one out on the skee-ball hole. Maybe it wasn't a successful day at the track for the $10, you bet. Well, maybe you got snubbed on a few autographs, but you didn't care because you were in receipt of something much more valuable at the time. Something passed on that you can never lose or forget or put a price tag on. Those days are long gone, and my father is as well. When he moved on, I asked Bill Nader of the New York Racing Association if we could do a race dedication for him and have a plaque put by where my parents sat. Gee, Kevin, that may be hard, he glumly said in his office. If we did that, then everyone would want one. When was his birthday, he asked. August 13, I told him. After an odd stare and a substantial pause, he said, That was my father's birthday. Where do you want the plaque? Something about fathers and sons. The plaque was unveiled. The race was won. And who was the winner? The daddy, of course. Why wouldn't it be? Every year afterwards, my mother would sit there during her summer sojourns, getting as close to him as possible, a catharsis of sorts. On the night of her passing a few years ago, just before she left, during the Saratoga meet, no less, I said, Mom, just give me any sign that you're with him and that all is well, that you're both happy. Two hours later, I entered her house only to find it burglarized. Only it wasn't burglarized at all. A picture had fallen off the wall and landed unbroken on the floor. It was the winner's circle photo of the daddy with my mother in it. They were together again in his favorite place and the list wasn't needed to ensure a good time. So today I'll give the plaque a bit of a shine and sit there and sip a beer with Bijou just as I have done every year because tradition dictates it, you know. And that was Kevin Cox, a.k.a. the Brooklyn Cowboy, who, by the way, became a police officer at the NYPD, an agent for horse jockeys, and is currently a professional gambler. The Brooklyn Cowboy was even featured on the Esquire Network program Horse Players as they followed his life as a horse handicapper. And it all started with his dad, Walter Bijou Cox, and this beautiful place called Saratoga Racetrack. And by the way, uh, it's not just fathers and sons. My little girl and I, well, it's always Santa Anita during the winter break, and I take her to L.A., and we watch that very first race. Del Mar, I'll take her to Belmont, and before she leaves home, she'll have seen it all, all the great tracks in this country. A little touch of America, Brooklyn meets upstate New York, the beautiful town of Saratoga, the remarkable place that is Saratoga Racetrack. The Cox Family Story, here on Our American Stories.
Well, my goodness gracious, let me tell you the news. My head's been wet with the midnight dew. I've been down on bended knee, talking to the man from Galilee. He spoke to me with a voice so sweet. I thought I heard the shuffle of angels sweet. He called my name and my heart stood still. When he said, John, go do my will. Go tell that long-tongued liar. Go and tell that midnight rider. Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter. Tell him that God's gonna cut him down. Tell him that God's gonna cut him down. This is Our American Stories. You're listening to the one and only Johnny Cash. Not a lot of folks bump in with that song in particular. We love digging into the catalog of Cash. We love music on this show, and we love storytellers. And my goodness, was there a better one than Johnny Cash? Well, Greg Hengler's got a music story for us today, folks. Let's take a listen to what he's got. The role of a record producer can't be underestimated. They make singers into celebrities, and as we are about to hear, they can take has-beens and turn them into must-haves. This is the story of a friendship between the young record producer Rick Rubin and the aging rock legend Johnny Cash. Here's Rick Rubin. I think everyone benefits from having a producer just because it really helps having a sort of an impartial jury to make sense of it all. But there's no right or wrong way to do this. It's like any way you find the inspiration works. Jam means record. Death is short for definitive. Definitely the best records you could buy today. Here's Adam Horowitz from the Beastie Boys. When we first met Rick Rubin, I didn't know anything about production. I didn't think about production. I didn't know that it even existed. Rick definitely was into that. Luckily, he was good at it. Do you know what I mean? Like, he could have sucked, and that would have been the end of it. For all of us. Here's music historian Jason King. Rick Rubin started Def Jam, the massive, multi-million dollar enterprise, in his dorm room at NYU. And he went on to produce Run DMC, uh, Beastie Boys, Metallica, and Slayer. He's produced Red Hot Chili Peppers, the Dixie Chicks. He's an incredibly diverse and wide-ranging producer. The reason that the artists might not all fit into one genre is it's not really the way I listen to music. I just like good music, and I try not to categorize it too much. In the early 1990s, Rick Rubin started a new record label, Deaf American, and he was really interested in testing himself as a producer. By that time, most of the artists I'd worked with were new and young artists, and it felt like it would be really... um, interesting challenge to find a great older artist who'd been through a lot and maybe wasn't doing their best work at the time. And the first person I thought of was Johnny Cash. He'd been dropped by two labels. He'd already had a comeback, and that was probably 25 years earlier. Here's daughter Roseanne Cash. He thought people didn't care about his work anymore. He didn't feel the support from the label. He was floundering a bit. Here's guitarist Marty Stewart. Country music would have nothing to do with it. In the 80s, when I was in his band, we recorded album after album after album, and nothing happened. Here's Johnny Cash. Somebody stole all the magic. Like in the 70s, some of the 80s, 
and the magic of the music was gone. And I was just doing it because I do it. I was just doing it because that's what I do. And I hate that. A friend of mine set up a meeting for us. He was playing at a dinner theater in Orange County. It didn't feel like a place that was appropriate for someone of his importance to be playing. It just was sad. My contract was running out with the other record company, and uh, Rick Rubin came down to see me. And uh, I liked the way he talked. You know, he talked like he reminded me of uh, Sam Phillips. And I said, what would you do with me that uh, everybody else has tried to do, you know, and couldn't? And he said, well, what would you like to do? We always started in my living room just with a guitar and talking about songs. Back about 18 and 25, I left Tennessee very much alive. And I would have him sing me songs from his childhood. He played me songs that they would sing on the cotton fields when he used to pick cotton. The Tennessee stud was long and lean, the color of the sun and his eyes were green. He really gave me a tremendous education in this lost music that I didn't know anything about, and I loved it. Heard a little baby on the cabin floor, little horse cold playing around the door. From the first time that we met, we recorded everything, just had the machine going all the time. It becomes second nature. People forget their recording and just sort of be themselves, and that's the goal to get to that point. The first album we made was mostly solo acoustic. And then it came time to do the next one, and he had Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers as the backing band. Here's Tom Petty. I never pick cotton. Rick's idea was to set John free and let that artist live. Daddy died young, working in a coal mine. John would start to sing, and we get kind of a feel for how the arrangement might go, and then, woof, everybody jump on to their respective instruments. And it was fast cars and whiskey. Here's guitarist Mike Campbell. I mean, it was raw, and at times it wasn't musical, but it was so real and so heartfelt that it, it almost brought me to tears. But then Rick would really try to push Johnny to do things that he would never think of doing. I played Johnny Cash the Soundgarden song Rusty Cage, which is a heavy metal song with Chris Cornell singing in a very high-pitched scream. And Johnny listened to it and just shook his head and he's just like, I, I don't really know what you're thinking. Like, I, I don't, um, can't imagine myself doing it. And then I made an acoustic demo of it. Bit by bit, Rick guided us through the arrangement, and there it was, you know. You wired me awake and hit me with the hand of broken nails. Johnny was really happy, and he said, I love this. This is great. He goes, this is going to piss off so many people. I'm going to break. I'm going to break my, going to break my rusty cage. 
It don't hurt anymore. A lot of the job is that of being a therapist, of being there and uh, really hearing the artist and hearing what their vision is and really setting up a place where they feel they're safe and can be vulnerable and show themselves completely. And at last I am free. The infusion he gave my dad of the old confidence and passion was so powerful. I mean, Rick was like an angel who came in to say, remember, this is who you are. That I cared so I mean, it was as simple as that. Remember. And it's wonderful now. I don't hurt anymore. And great work on that, Greg. And wow, what a thing to say about somebody. He made me feel safe, vulnerable, and he allowed me to be myself completely. This is beautiful. And that is that is really what record producers do. It's what great directors do in the end. And really, that's really it's actually what good bosses and parents can do. Johnny Cash's story, Rick Rubin's story. Actually, it's a love story. If you read A Man Called Cash, you won't believe it. It is a love story. Because one man's love of another saved the guy's career and resuscitated a career a whole new generation of MTV viewers. Listen to Delia's Gone and so many of those great Deaf American records. If you've never heard them before, go on Google, put on Johnny Cash and Rick Rubin and just sit down and listen. And that the background and backup band was, well, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers? And they were just serving Johnny too. The record labels got it wrong. Rick Rubin got it right. What an American story. What a great music story here on Our American Stories. When the man comes around... Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers One hundred million angels singing Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum Voices calling, voices crying Some are born and some are dying It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come the whirlwind is in the thorn tree The virgins are all trimming their wicks The whirlwind is in the thorn tree This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from arts to sports, from history to business, and everything in between, stories about love and death, and things you care about. Send your stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll listen to them, produce them, and get some microphones over to you, and get a team out to you, and get the stories on the air. I would say one in five of our stories now are coming from you. And our next story, well, Alex Cortez brings it to us. Here's an unusual college president. Look, I was all over the place. We served in Germany, in Korea. I was in the 101st Airborne Division when we went into Iraq in 03 as one of the first groups across the border after shock and awe. I served a year in Afghanistan managing construction in, in Bagram for a year. The Army gave me more than I ever could have given it. Mike Rounds is an unusual college president of an equally unusual college. We have so many employers that want to hire these guys, not just for their skills, 
but for their character, for their leadership abilities. So we say, if you're a company you want to hire, you pay us to come to these career fairs. The two career fairs we had this year, we ran out of space both times, and we had a total of 175 companies from 14 states, and that's to hire 76 seniors, right? So that's crazy. I mean, there's no other school in the country that can say we have almost twice as many employers paying money to try to come and hire these guys than we have students. And it's a trade school. <laughs> Williamson College of the Trades. In today's culture, it's become, well, you know, um, if I don't want to take advanced placement philosophy, write essays that are going to get me into, you know, Harvard, well, if I tell a counselor that I'd rather work with wood, now I get treated a certain way that isn't always very good. You're a Votech kid. You're not motivated. For our guys, they like to work with their hands. So they like the idea of working with wood or being outside or building something or fixing something. And so looking at that young man and saying, look, your abilities, desire, skills, interest in working with your hands is nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, we need guys like you. Our two oldest sons graduated from Princeton, and I tell people this all the time. I mean, great school, but I don't believe that they had all the Princeton graduates multiply by 1.5 or 1.7 companies competing to hire those people. They just didn't, and I don't think there's anyone else in the country that can claim that, but we have it right here twice a year. You can come see it for yourself. And these kids with two job offers on average went to a college that's free if you can believe that who was founded by an awesome dude named isaiah williamson to be free vision of a philanthropist a quaker here in philadelphia he was a very wealthy man and um but also very frugal and who said i see these poor young men on the streets with no future and i want to build a school where free of charge they can get training in a trade and an education, moral and religious, and exercise and recreation to become useful, respected members of society. When he passed away, he left a million dollars to endow the school and a million to build it. So for 130 years, it's been doing that. And so it's still, every student that attends here is completely funded room, board, and tuition. Outside of a few student fees, and then equate to probably less than $2,000 over the three years that they're here, everything is provided for them. And they're all young men from some pretty extreme need. We have over 400 applicants for only 100 spots, so we focus on the young men that first have the capability and the desire to go through this challenging program, but then the next default goes back to who has the most financial need. And that's the neat part of it. This run really like a military academy. Early morning, they're up, they clean their room and their common areas. They come out in front of the flagpole, 715, and they stand at attention and watch the flag go up and get inspected for their appearance and breakfast and chapel. And we pack their day full of class and shop and activities. So it's an intense environment. They have to be clean shaven. The first two years, the senior year, they're allowed to have a, uh, a neatly trimmed beard or mustache. But that's part of the inspection in the morning. Their shoe shine, do they look presentable? They have clean clothes on. They're all in coat and tie. Well, you can imagine that, you know, most of the kids that come here have never owned a coat and tie. So we actually have a clothes closet. People donate gently used coats, suits, shoes, belts. And so that's what the guys wear. Every day when they come to line up and every meal, they're in coat and tie. And then when they go to the shop, they change into their shop clothes. But that's, that's another unique part of Williamson, I guess. But why wear a coat and tie at all? 
I mean, it's not the uniform for most trade jobs. It's interesting, where did that idea come from? It's kind of been here forever. One of the reasons was that when Mr. Williamson wrote his deed of trust, he designated a board of trustees, and on that board of trustees was a guy named John Wanamaker. And John Wanamaker's famous store in Philadelphia, and for many, many years, they would go down to Wanamaker's store and they would fit them with two suits. And it was always part of the culture here. Years later, that dried up, but then the idea of continuing to have them in coat and tie. And just to give you an idea, last year's freshman class, when we averaged the family's taxable income per family member, it came out to $4,200. So very few of them have owned a coat and tie. And we don't have a uniform factory putting them in a uniform, but to say this is our standard and we recognize that you probably we don't have the means to acquire that stuff, so that's why we run the clothes closet. And I really think that it changes even subconsciously how they view themselves. And I think they really feel like they're part of something special, maybe for the first time in their lives. And it's how they carry themselves, how they think of themselves. It's all part of that. And I think having them dress the way we have them dress and groomed the way that they groom is all part of building that confidence in themselves. Is zero tolerance for drugs and alcohol. So, I mean, one offense, you're out. As a Catholic, hearing that was painful. I'm Catholic too, and I, I'm, a, I'm a social drinker. I like beer, but I always tell them the story that, hey, I was a lieutenant colonel in Afghanistan for a year, and general order number one was no alcohol. And I like beer, and I like to drink socially, but I knew the rule was the rule. And I didn't argue with it and say, oh, I'm a colonel, I shouldn't have to do that. Or I, I just said, that's the rule, it's very clear, and you have to make a decision. You know, are you, are you going to chance it, or are you going to not do it? The only sure way to not get something to happen is to avoid it and you know as you transition from being a high school student to being a, a grown man who's starting to make decisions about the, your future you need to put yourself with the kind of people that are making better decisions than that it is strict but for a lot of these guys the discipline and structure is what sets them apart when the employers come the day of the career fair all you got to do is just walk through the gym and ask these companies you're here from Kentucky California why? What do you? And they will tell you exactly why they come and try to hire Williamson guys. It has as much to do with the discipline and character pieces of these guys as it does to do with the specific skills they may have been trained in in their individual program. Here's one Williamson student on the day of his graduation. I had eight job offers when I took the one I have now, and they're still rolling in. I got a phone call yesterday for another one. How many college graduates? have employers actively seeking them for employment. And I think that's one thing about this place. Like, besides everything else that this place has to offer, you will graduate with a job, guaranteed. If you want it, you got it. And we're gonna continue with this story after a commercial break. And it came to us from one of our friends in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And his name's Mark Murray, and he told us about Williamson College of the Trades, and we jumped right on it. And some folks from there have visited Williamson and are now looking to bring its model to their community with a Catholic trade school called Harmel. Your community can do this too, by the way, and that's why we bring you these stories. Stories have a tremendous imitative power. And just shipping our kids off to college to accumulate debt with no discernible skills after 
just can't continue. And we keep hearing this from our listeners. that This is such a big concern of theirs. And reach out to Mike Rounds, the president, and take a visit. Every region in America could use a Williamson College. By the way, I was particularly taken aback, not just that they're teaching the trades, but more important, they're teaching character. That suit thing is great. And I love it when Mr. Round said it changes how these kids view themselves, how they carry themselves, and how they think of themselves. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story of Williamson College of the Trades with Mike Rounds, the president. This is Our American Stories. return to the story of Williamson College of the Trades, a trade school outside of Philadelphia, but not your ordinary trade school, folks, a, a product of great generosity and philanthropy. And we're talking to its president, former military man, Mike Rounds. Let's pick up where we last left off. Every day we go to a short 15-minute chapel before we head off to class at 8. And I get up early so I can get over there. <laughs> I'm a former military guy, so I'm used to, I get up at 4.30, <laughs> I get out and head over to the YMCA, get a workout in, get back and try to be over here a little before 7.30 so that I can start my day. Just just not, not to show my face there, but because I really, I think that's a unique part of being at Williamson is the opportunity to start each day in chapel thinking about what's really important. When you apply to Williamson, you don't have to say, I'm a Christian, but as part of the interview process, we tell you the things that are unique about Williamson, and that includes going to daily chapels. So although a student doesn't have to sign a profession of faith or stand up and say anything, they do understand that just like everything at Williamson, you can't opt out. So you are required to be there in your seat, ready to go when we start chapel at 730. Be respectful, stay awake. But for the guys that have that peace in their life, it's a great connecting point. There's a lot of fellowship opportunities. So that, to me, is something I really love about Williamson that's pretty special. It's pretty special of President Rounds, too. Most college presidents aren't involved with the students like this. Service is also one of our core values. And we have a whole week to May after final exams. We take the next week and everybody gets involved in a service project staff, faculty, students, off campus, all around the area, and just the idea of like, hey, guys, you know, uh, Mr. Williamson and many others have made this possible for you. So now give back yourself, make that part of who you are, serve your community, find places where you can contribute your skills, talent, time, whatever, pay it forward. Here's some more Williamson students on the day of their graduation. My roommate, Richie. I think it might have been freshman year or junior year, he pulled over on the side of 202 and fixed somebody's flat tire. And every time I'm driving, I look for somebody on the side of the road. If they have a flat tire, I, I try to stop if I can, or even just someone needs money. Like, you see somebody struggling with gas, I throw five bucks in there. It's just a little stuff that, like, it becomes a habit. Like, I want to do it now. And I truly think it's the people around me and this place that makes me do it. You create that culture by two things, I think. First, being together. If you came here with a family that's falling apart or struggling, you come here and you build another one. I don't think this place would work 
if we just had these guys show up in the morning, take a couple classes, and then just go back to wherever they came from. They live together in dorms of 24 with a dorm parent that lives there full-time with them. They do everything together. Over three years, they build very strong bonds. Uh, my experience freshman year, my grandfather passed away, and I was pulled out of class early morning. And by the time I got to the hospital, I checked my phone, and I had several texts from about 20 to 30 different guys asking me how I'm doing, how you're holding up, is there anything we can do? And I was with my immediate family, but I knew in the back of my head, you know, I got another family back at school that they're really there to help me. So that's, that hit hard. We call it a brotherhood, right? I mean, that's what we tell them. This is a brotherhood. Like, your buddies you hung out with in high school are not living their life to the same standard you are. I had uh, a close friend, well, still my close friend, in uh, high school, senior year. When I told him I was thinking about coming to Williamson, you know, first thing was also a boys' school. You know, high school, that's the last thing you want to hear for college. <laughs> but I forgot all that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, the three years, the three, now I'm in my third, well, now I'm a graduate, actually, and uh, which is awesome. I'm a graduate, and, uh, you know, he's, he's just like, oh, man, I wish I went to that school. You know, he owes crazy amounts of money. He's struggling in school. He's struggling to keep up with the payments. And now it's just like, he's looking at me and he's like, you're about to graduate. You know, so if I could talk, or you're a graduate, I'm sorry. So if I could talk to, uh, <laughs> if I could talk to, um, if I could talk to any high school student, I would tell them, make the mature decision. You know, it's hard to get through to them because they're coming out of high school. But you gotta really look at yourself in the mirror and say, Am I going to the NBA? Am I going to the NFL? <laughs> Am I going to be this big music star? Or, you know, I'm not saying not to chase your dream, but Williamson will, it'll give you direction. It'll put you in a position. Something small as, uh, you know, going to North Dakota for the summer. That was a, like I went to North Dakota for a summer to work, and I had never been on a plane before. You know, it was my first time getting on a plane was through Williamson. I got that experience through Williamson. So it's just, you, I think they should make the mature decision. You got to really look at yourself in the mirror and say, what do I need to do as a man? <clears throat> Not as what I'm seeing on television or what I see in movies or what this kid did or that kid did. Because you got to make the decision for yourself. So That is the environment we want to create. And, you know, it can be tough. I mean, in an environment like that where there's a lot of rules and a lot of consequences when you don't meet, it can become kind of a negative, right? At the worst, it could almost become like a prison camp environment, but it's not, just like it's not at a military academy because the focus of what we're trying to teach them in leadership, so with the seniors, as you progress through as a freshman, you're in the shop at the same time as the seniors. So the seniors are responsible for training the freshmen, directing them to lead it with a positive attitude, but to direct somebody, to inspect their work, to correct them when they need it. But in the big picture, right, to be enthusiastic. And, and what you want is that freshman looks at that senior and says, wow, that guy is so squared away. That guy, I want to be like him when I'm a senior. That's what you want. My freshman year coming in, it was always like watching the seniors. Like, I was always looking at the seniors, just paying attention, even when they didn't think we was paying attention what they was doing. And it just really hit that, uh, you know, as a senior, to lead, you can't just tell 
we was you can't just tell the freshmen to do this. You have to tell them to do this, and then they have to see you doing what you told them to do on a daily basis. And that's uh, you know, that's something. That's one of the core values that has stuck with me too. Integrity. I mean, any any leader can lead through fear and intimidation and being negative. There's a way to get somebody to do something, but when you lead by example and are a role model and inspire and motivate, then people will run through walls for you. And that's the culture we're trying to build here at Williamson as we train our students through a three-year leadership program that culminates in them basically being in charge in the shops and working with the freshmen. We have five of our trustees. It's kind of neat. We have 20 trustees, 10 that are just love our mission, have no connection to it family-wise. Five that are sons of graduates, right? Their dads came here. They didn't go here, but because their dads did, they were very successful and they had other opportunities and they themselves were successful. But they say that Williamson altered the path of my whole family by my dad coming here. And then five that are graduates, including our chairman, who is Bill Bonneberger, was a brick mason from Tamaqua, cool country, and came here and went to work for Toll Brothers for six years and met his wife there. And the two of them decided to quit and start their own home building company and they're now like the 10th largest home builder in the Philadelphia area right and then Art Lalo is class of 79 PhD Art Lalo he it is a great story too because he he was a he was a machinist and he <laughs> he's sitting in the last week of class before graduation at the time and a Boeing guy comes in and says who wants to work for Boeing and Art's like hmm, that sounds like a good company I'll, and raised his hand and the guy took down the name and said, all right, show up Monday at this gate, come in, blah, 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 do this. And then he walks out of the room. And Art said, uh, told the shop instructor, so is that the interview Monday? He goes, no, that was the interview. He's expecting you to start work Monday at Boeing. So, <laughs> so Art graduated Saturday, went to work for Boeing. He's still working there 32 years later. He went to night school on Boeing's dime for 22 years. He got a bachelor's, two masters, and a PhD, and is an adjunct professor at Widener in addition to being a senior project manager. We got Tom Goki, who's class of 81, a machinist who's the president and CEO of Millicron. And Millicron's headquartered in Cincinnati, has I think 7,500 employees worldwide, and he's president and CEO. And then John Barnes, power plant class of 84, is the COO of Exelon. And Exelon is a monstrous company, but he's the COO, right? So all those guys can stand in front of our students and say, hey, I started just like you. And the things they're teaching at Williamson will give you the tools to be as successful or more successful than, than I have been. So it's up to you. Again, it's about them coming in here with little confidence and then seeing as they build their own confidence and seeing the opportunities. It's a neat thing to see. Uh, you're literally breaking a cycle of poverty for most of these kids. And great job, as always, to Alex, who brings us such interesting stories. And this is a great one, folks. And again, you know, we hope people will copy this. If you've got some net worth or know somebody who does in your community, my goodness, take a visit to this remarkable school, Williamson College of the Trades, and Mike Rounds would be happy to hear you. And if you're listening and you want to just send a donation, well, Williamson College of the Trades, Google it, send a check, and your money will go to good use. You heard it in the voices of those young folks. By the way, Dr. Jack Templeton of the Templeton Foundation got to know Williamson and his foundation. He wondered whether they were actually getting the results that they thought they were, so he commissioned a three-year multi-million dollar project with Tufts University to study Williamson and a few other comparable schools and found that on average, Williamson was just killing it. 
Their students scored higher in character attributes like reliability, excellence, competence, and connection to other students. And my goodness, these are big deals. Tufts also concluded that Williamson's system of structure and rules and its brotherhood environment were very important to the cultivation of the character we just talked about. This is Our American Stories, the story of Mike Rounds, the story of Williamson College of the Trades, and in the end, the story of American generosity, here on Our American Stories. <laughs>